Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Francine Stock. I'm delighted to be here with director Brett Robert to talk about Jane, the documentary. And I mean, the way that this came to you, because 140 hours of previously unseen footage, I mean, what kind of form? Who brought that to you? How did that work? Uh, I was out promoting a movie called um, Montage of Hack about Kurt Cobain when I received a call from National Geographic asking if I would be interested in, in doing this film on, on Jane, um, which seemed very odd that they were uh, approaching someone who had just done a film on Kurt Cobain. Um, uh, and, um, but they knew I love archives. And when I looked at, when they showed me the archive, I was completely blown away. Um, you know, I, I felt like um, from a, both from a humanitarian perspective as well as a cinematic perspective, Hugo's documentation of Jane's work to me is as extraordinary as Jane's documentation of her work. Mm -hmm. Meaning what Jane had done was something that had never happened in the history uh, of evolution and would never happen again. And what Hugo did in 1962 with, with by himself shooting 60 millimeter out in the Africa like that was just an extraordinary feat for any of us who remember <laughs> how, how difficult it is to work with 16. I mean, it's just kind of mind blowing. Um, However, uh, so, so I was very excited, and then um, they sent the 140 hours to me, and uh, it, was a bit of a, <laughs> it was a bit of a bummer, um, because uh, I was expecting uh, like uh, Camera Reel 1, Camera Reel 2, and I was so excited to see how Hugo shot the, in, in or sequential order. But as it turned out, it was 140 hours of random shots. There was no, they were, they'd all been taken off the reels you know, eons ago. Uh, there were no notes. There was no sound. Um, there, were, there were 160 chimpanzees that were photographed. Uh, they didn't have name tags, of course. <laughs> and, and so we had to set about trying to figure out which chimp was which. Um, we had to make order of the footage. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, how did you work out which Well, it was a real nightmare. I mean, it was like literally like... Um, uh, it was an impossibility, really. I mean, it was like, we talked about, you know, the, these, the, we like to say it's like a needle in a haystack, but this literally was a needle in a haystack. So what we did is we shut down production and we collated the footage by theme. So I had uh, 15 interns just rolling through it. And I said, okay, anytime you see chimps eating, pull that out and put it in a real one. And we did that with various categories. And then we set up to do, uh, we set up a sound studio um, at my office because there was no sound to any of the, the, the material. And the goal, of course, was to create an immersive experience. And so that was going to rely heavily on sound. So we acquired a library of audio that had been recorded in Gombe over the years and, um, and hired a, a young audio enthusiast and set him about. And for the last two years, he did nothing but work on chimp vocalization. Um, and I will say, I think he did an extraordinary job. I mean, when we showed it to the professionals, they were like, uh, it was, you know, pretty, pretty so, so that sound, in the, in that, uh, to that extent, it was kind of authentic in that it was drawn from Gombe. Correct, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and Jane Goodall herself, at what stage you know, did, did you talk to her about what form it was? Very like? late. See, I was blessed. Jane is a prolific writer. 
Um, and, and so I'd read all of her books. And she wanted as little to do with this film as possible. I mean, now she's very, I'll get to that good part, which is now, but when we were making it, she got called by the National Geographic, and she goes, ah, oh, geez, another documentary? And I keep telling her, that's so funny, I thought the same thing. <laughs> and, and she really didn't think there was anything left to do with the footage. And um, she, but she, she agreed to do it because I think JGI told her it would be good for, for JGI. She reluctantly agreed to do it. She told me uh, I can have a couple hours to do an interview. We did a couple days. Um, and one of the great blessings of how this whole thing emerged is that I love that she was a reluctant participant mm. because in her interview, it's so honest and there's no, it, there's no pretense. She's usually a subject who's sitting down for a legacy interview is trying to sell an agenda. But Jane had nothing. It was like, come on, out with it. What do you want? And I mean, that was literally the, the first question I asked her was, do you get tired of telling your story? And she stared me down and said, well, it depends on who's asking the questions. And I was like, okay, this is going to be interesting. And, um, but the, the, the good news, see, I was guided because I, I was following, the movie to me is In the Shadow of Man, Jane's book. It was called In the Shadow of Man up until the premiere. Um, and if you've read Jane's book, it's an amazing, one of the greatest books written about living in the wild, and it's very lyrical and romantic. And, um, and so I use that as my guide to write the script. One thing that is very clear, and, and this goes to Jane's experience with the film today, is her book, as I mentioned, was quite lyrical. And when I looked at Hugo's imagery, uh, I found a visual counterpoint to it, that there was a lyricism in, in the way he shot Gombe and the insects and the natural world that I thought would be very useful in illustrating Jane's book. But Jane's book also has an element of magical realism. You see, as, as great as a scientific document as it is, it's, it's interpretive and it's her experience. And of course for Jane, walking into Gombe was like walking into a rainbow. But when we looked at the footage of Gombe, it was brown. It was a lot of brown with a little bit of green. It was very redundant, there was not a rainbow. And so in our color correct, we set about creating a look for Gombe that had some of that color value that I felt Jane was writing about, that she associated with Gombe. After Philip delivered his music, we then re-edited the entire film for six months, choreographing um, both the edit points to his music as well as all the chimpanzee movements, as well as their vocalization was pitched and moved to be in sync and harmonious with Philip's music. Again, in this effort to kind of cast Gombe in this as through Jane's perspective, this magical realism. And the beauty of this is when Jane then finally saw the film, she said this is the first time she's ever seen Gombe presented in film in a manner that's honest and truthful to her experience of it. And I think it's, 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 it's very much, it's, it's a fascinating, sort of thing because, it, again, it wasn't a literal interpretation as much as it was, and I think I've talked to her about this the other day, and I said maybe in the past all of the films that were made were imposing a forced narrative, whereas I was working from your narrative, from your script, so it was easy for me to try to get inside your space. But the other side of that kind of lyricism and that sort of subjective, her subjective view of what Gombe was like 
were, I mean, two of the really arresting uh, sequences, which actually I think really shake you a little bit. One obviously is when the chimps turn violent, mm. um, which is quite horrifying. Mm. Uh, and, and the other is, is that sequence of the child in the cage with the chimps on the outside, which is a really sort of provoking sequence in its way. I mean, it's not, it's not disturbing, something bad happening to the child, but it makes you think about her view um, and the whole perspective of it as well. And, and I like that you don't, uh, you don't kind of comment, you let the pictures do that. Yeah, I, I didn't think it was a, look, when you have a, someone as, as amazing as Jane, you know, I mean, Jane is just an incredible human being. It's very difficult to try to do a portrait of Jane that does not speak to some degree of reverence, or I don't know why you would waste your time. I mean, I think, um, but I wasn't in awe of Jane when I did the interview. Um, that, the stuff about the cage certainly caught my attention. The, the, from a cultural standpoint, um, you know, the, the, when I first heard about her leaving Grub in England, I was a bit taken back. But the, of course, a different time, yeah. a, a different period in, in English history. Mm. And what I've really come to appreciate is how powerful it is for particularly women to see a story about another woman who does not have to give up her career to have a child. And it's, it's interesting because <laughs> we were doing a screening in Los Angeles and, the, and, a, and a wonderful director was moderating and he brought that scene up and he said, man, you know, like he was pointing out how clearly I was in, in total awe of Jane. And he goes, like the scene when she drops her kid off. He goes, man, that was just horrible. And, and people are booing him. And he, he was like, what, what's wrong with you people? And then I explained, I said, well, you know, I think for a lot of women, it's, it's kind of a, a powerful image that, that she, was, she didn't have to give up. And, and you're not criticizing her husband. You're not criticizing Hugo. You're criticizing Jane. And, um, and then people started applauding. Yeah. And then his wife quickly was like, you need to stitch. And um, <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I think it all worked very well. Like if it, I think if I went into it with more like reverence towards her, uh, it might not have been, had some of the honesty that it had. As I stand now, Jane and I are, are very much enamored with each other. I think we're, we're having the time of our lives taking this film out around the world. I, I don't think any, either of us expected anything much from this at all. I mean, she certainly did, and I, I, I certainly thought it was initially just going to fill in a slot in time I had, and um, it, it, it's really, I think that in, in that context, it, it makes it all the more special. And you never thought at any point that you wanted to have any other voices in it apart from hers? I mean, apart from no, the archive? because see, Jane, it, well, first of all, I didn't want to have her voice. I, initially, when I approached Philip Glass, I, I said, we're going to do an opera, and it's just going to be your music and sound effects. And then if anyone's worked in nature cinema, you need context. And you only go so far out in the jungle, you know? And, um, and so we started using um, a book on tape of Jane's called Reason for Hope. And I really got into it. And I'll tell you why. I did a movie called The Kid Stays in the Picture about Robert Evans, which in many ways was uh, one of the first adaptations of a book on tape. Um, and... Um, and as I got deeper and deeper into the film, I realized that a lot of the science stuff Jane has talked about in various times of her life. And so in many ways, we got to sculpt the performance. We could say, oh, do we want Jane to do this in her 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever. What I discovered about the reason for hope and her books on tape is Jane is an amazing writer. And even more so, she's an amazing speaker. And she's a 
she's an artist. The way Hugo's an artist, Jane's an artist. And, and if I asked her to describe to me her first day in Gombe, it would probably, you know, it's not going to have the lyricism that a writing does. It would be more pedestrian. Uh, oh, the first day was amazing. I remember we got off the boat and we walked in. and da -da -da. As opposed to as it stands in the film, she goes like, the rolling, the rolling hills, the little streams, the birds. Nobody talks like that. Like, and, but it's, so, it's an expression of Jane. And so we really leaned heavily in our narration. And I love that it was, it was her. It wasn't me imposing it on her. This was her art. And it was her art and Hugo's art. And what, what the movie ultimately is about is passion. You know, it's the, 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 the love for one's vocation and the passion that both Jane and Hugo and I think Philip Glass were able to bring to the project. So, I, I, and the, my sound team, I just feel like there's, there's this, this wonderful passion that's all sort of floating up on that screen. Yeah, and some of the phrases also from the letters as well that you were Was there anything that she said was off limits? No, nothing. There was stuff that I really wanted to get in that she talked to me about, like Leaky and uh, Leaky. There was some, I'd read about Leaky being, uh, putting some advances on Jane when they met. And it was, I, when I went to interview her, that to me was gonna be like the, the, the cornerstone of the film. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was like, I, I, I was so excited, not excited, I shouldn't say excited, but it, it was something I, I was really, I never heard her talk about, and I really wanted to get into the film. And um, she, we talked about it, but it, it would have had to come before, then we started cutting the film and she's already in Gombe, so we would have had to like, go backwards and it just, there's a good lesson when you're making documentary, you just can't try to get everything in there. You, you stick to your through line and you gotta stay focused. And, and while it would have been consistent with the sort of, the themes of the film, it, we would have had to go on a tangent to get there. Um, but it was something that I thought was important and obviously in light of everything that's happening today, I, I think it's, there's a lot of parallels in Jane's own life uh, to, to sort of um, harassment and stuff she had to overcome too. To, to fulfill her destiny. So you were startled then by the quality of, of Hugo's work then? Oh. And is it, it's relatively, I mean, I, I don't know, but it's relatively unknown outside certain circles, is it? I had never heard of him. Yeah. I mean, I knew nothing, I knew nothing of him, really. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I think that it's, it truly it, it really is one of the, it's like going to the moon and shooting the moonscape. I mean, it, it's so um, extreme what, what he did, what he pulled off by himself. I mean, there's this amazing story where, I mean, if you, uh, the, the, that type of film stock that he was shooting had a very limited latitude, meaning the, 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 the point from the highlight to the shadow, you had very limited range, a fraction of what we have today on our iPhones. And, um, and he's shooting a dark animal in a jungle. I mean, very difficult to expose he would bring sand in from the beach to, and put it where he thought the chimps might be to try to get a bounce, some reflection from the light mm. to come up and, and increase the exposure on them. I mean, just ingenious. Of course, it helped that this was really his only his uh, second assignment, real first big assignment. And he was so nervous uh, that he made sure that everything was properly exposed. I mean, much to Jane's chagrin, but <laughs> we were the beneficiaries of it. I mean, there wasn't a, a, a frame that wasn't beautifully exposed and, and composed. And I mean, just a, 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 and then when you stop and you go, 
what are the odds that two neophytes, two people who have no experience whatsoever in their chosen vocation, would walk into this jungle in Africa and emerge as the two greatest Jainas, I think perhaps the most influential and important and inspiring woman of the 20th century, scientist for sure, and Hugo ends up becoming this amazing, one of the great nature photographers of all time. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's really amazing when you think about it. <laughs> On that note, um, I'm going to invite some uh, questions from you. There's the hand up straight away there, and there's another microphone over there, if there's anybody on that side. Please uh, go Thank ahead. you for the bell. Could you please uh, tell us a bit more about the process of writing the script? Because it seems very tightly scripted. Yeah. At what point you started doing it, and how long did it take you to do it? So I, I, I go through the same experience on every film, which is uh, I read what books there are on the subject, and particularly if the subject's written books, those are obviously the most helpful. That provides me with a guide so when I'm screening the footage that I know what I'm looking for or what I'm looking at but I keep my mind open until I've screened through all the footage and I know what possibilities are available to me. Uh, the second we finish screening the footage, I break away to write the script because at that point it's pouring out of me. You know, I, I've been watching it, trying to figure out the, the connective tissue the whole time. Um, so at, at that point I break away and probably spend about three weeks uh, putting the script together, um, which in this case, my guide was Eden. There were three narratives that we were intersecting. The first one was, it's a story of the Garden of Eden. Now that's not a very optimistic or upbeat story as relates to this film. Uh, it starts off in that context, right? We open with the prologue, and the prologue was an attempt to sort of show the harmony, if you will, in, in Gombe before Jane arrives. And then the last image is of a snake, and underneath the snake is the sound of a boat and intrusion. And then we see Jane, and then she steps onto Gombe, and from that moment, Gombe would never be the same again. Civilization would never be the same again. Our knowledge would never be the same again. Um, the, and you could look at it from a multitude of different ways. I mean, in, in some respects, uh, our knowledge of chimpanzees grew exponentially, and the world has benefited, and Gombe is now preserved, and it's booming and all that. But you could see that there was a negative effect. I mean, Jane recognized as well that if she could go back in time, she wouldn't have fed them bananas. And the bananas triggered a whole host of problems that the film um, explores. So we, that became a very consistent sort of through line in the script. And then there was a story of female empowerment. And then there was a love story. And the final, the final uh, thing that really drove the script home when we finally figured out what the movie was, was understanding that it was a love story not about a man and a woman, but a woman in her work. Because that told us where the film had to end, how, how to get to that, to that ending point. And that in many ways, I like that when Jane, once she was divorced, once her and Hugo split up, to me, she was able to return to that purity she had before him. That's why I, I wanted to call the movie In the Shadow of Man, because I felt that she was under Leaky's shadow and Hugo's shadow, and then finally it's... So I was playing off the, the... Although she did get married again. She did get married to Derek, and, then, and, and that's very interesting because this is a fascinating point because she did get married again to Derek, and I, when I went to Gombe, I was convinced Derek was going to be part of the movie. And then as I was interviewing her, I suddenly dawned to me that if I put Derek in the movie, it would be what I call an and-then moment. I would, I would 
go through Derek and get to the same place where she'd be back in Gombe by herself having the same thought. And I was like, oh, it's a detour. You don't need it. And I said to her, I go, do you mind if I don't talk about Derek? And she was like, no, I don't care. Whatever you, she's like, whatever you're going to do, just be done with it. And uh, we've mentioned him anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Is there another, is there another question here? Yes, down here. Thanks. I mean, that's an amazing film. So much work you, you actually had to, to do with the sound and everything else. How long did that whole process take from start to finish to, to actually complete this documentary? It was a little, little under three years. Yeah. But we were over, like, you know, we started sound before we started editing, picture cutting. So it was a pretty unorthodox process. And we hired Philip before we started cutting the movie. So we did things. A slightly different way. Once, once we got to picture cutting, once we were able to make sense of the footage, um, and I had a, a pretty solid script, people said to me, it must have been so difficult to go through 140 hours. Well, I mean, for those of us who make documentaries, that's not that much footage. Um, and the good news is, for us, is chimps don't do that many things. You know what I mean? It's, like, it's not like 140 hours of our lives. It's like they eat, they, they sleep, they walk from point A to point B. Uh, I mean, it's like you kind of handle the chimp narrative relatively easily. Um, but yeah. So, but, but the framework, in order to have the chimp narrative, the framework was from Jane's book. Jane, yeah, we were observing Jane, not the chimps. I mean, that was the whole thing is this wasn't, I mean, from, from the get-go, is a movie about observing Jane. It's about Jane. She's the, she's the, she's the subject. And what's amazing is that you're, you're watching it, and at first you might be wondering, like, gee, the camera loves Jane. And like you find out, yes, the camera really does love Jane. And it's falling in love with Jane. And so it really is like, not only are we, the viewers, observing Jane, but then you start to assign in the second act of the film the perspective, the point of view, to Hugo. And now we see everything through Hugo's perspective. And it's very, I mean, it's so wonderful to have that in a film. I, that, to me, was really so exciting. You know, because it, it starts off as a, I would say, a very traditional Robert Flaherty film, you know, and, you, and really embracing Flaherty aesthetics of reconstruction. And then it becomes this Ross McAway film, you know, this or Nick Broomfield, whatever you want to call it, this first person breaking down the fourth wall when Hugo's arrival. And then by the time we get to the end of the film, it becomes a much more subjective movie that we're more accustomed to, I think, in this century. Um, with nonfiction, so really, I think it has mixes all these kind of interesting aesthetics. Mm -hmm. Great. Yes, just for that. Thanks. Nothing about the technicalities of the film, but it seems to me that part of the narrative that's perhaps missing is Grub. Wonderful that he became a master boat builder and lives in Africa. But I wondered, did you interview him? I was really interested that he hated the chimps. Yeah. I longed to know more about his development in reference to Jane and her work and her destiny. Generally, most people don't remember their lives before they're four years old. So interviewing someone about that period of their life is not generally that I, I don't think it, it's that rewarding. 
um, because he leaves our movie at six years old, you see. So I, I can't necessarily interview him about how, what he was experiencing when he was two years old or three years old. Um, so I, I thought, of, thought of it, but I didn't think there would be much value to it. That, to that extent. And I, I did think it was important to circle back to him so just we knew that it, everything ended up being okay. I also think it would have muddied the, the it's Jane's, you know, it's very much Jane's narrative. Um, so to deviate from her voice uh, to me would have been a bit disruptive at that stage of the film. It does, though, make us, it does make us draw some conclusions, rightly or wrongly, um, that you see her obviously so close with him and when he's small and then, as you say, there's this thing about him being sent off to school, which I appreciate was, you know, especially if you're living abroad, may have been the custom at the time. But it does, it does again, add to a sort of co quite complex portrait of... Certainly it does. Mother. I mean, yeah. this is, but this is, I think, the most... I think that Jane, um, most women are told or taught or expected to give up their careers. And again, nobody has ever come out of this film and said, I can't believe Hugo let his son go to, you know, and so it's, it's, it's unfair that we would think that Jane had to give up her career when Hugo, nobody ever questions that with Hugo. So I think, I, I, listen, I've talked to Grubb and we had this amazing exhibit. We did an incredible premiere for this film in Los Angeles at the Hollywood Bowl for 18,000 people. Um, it was the, the biggest, uh, they say it's the biggest documentary premiere in history with a 78-piece orchestra, and, uh, which, which was a ext really extraordinary evening. And we had, Grub, Grub was there. And um, I have this amazing footage that I shot backstage right when we were about to go on stage at the end of the film. And Jane and Grubb and I were watching the, the, the end of the film together, and he was grinning from ear to ear. Mm. I have I, I, asked him, and, and I think, just since we brought up Grubb, I think he's very much appreciates, well, he appreciates the film. He's very happy about the film and the way it gives Hugo um, his, his due. And I think he really understands and appreciates that his parents, both of them, were sort of serving a higher purpose. And... and were doing things that greatly benefited all of us. And so I think that there's a, you know, he lives with his mother now. They live together in the same uh, house in Dar es Salaam as, as they have for, for, for many decades now. Well, on that point, we have to, uh, we have to call it an end to this. The film is in cinemas here? Uh, the film opens Friday. in cinemas on Friday, so please, uh, if spread you enjoy the, the film, spread the word. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you.